Don't ever get a dachshund. They're domestic terrorists. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we explore the darkest timelines, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the vile variant herself, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> Hello. If you're new to the show, the purpose of the podcast is to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at the coolest, the weirdest, the silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that really helps with discoverability. Same with Spotify, which has just enabled ratings as well. Podchaser and Good Pods. We've already spoken at length about how much we love Good Pods as a platform, and hopefully we can find you on there. Likewise, we'd love to have you join our little community on social media. You can find us as Tencent Takes, all one word, on every major platform. Today, we're going to be exploring the Alterniverse, which was Marvel's short-lived replacement? Evolution? <laughs> Offshoot? Perhaps? For its what-if comics in the 90s. But because it's easy to get lost in meandering around the multiverse, we've asked Robin Guido from the wonderful Dear Watchers podcast, otherwise known as the Council of Watchers, to come <laughs> on the show and guide us along. So, Robin Guido, would you do us a favor and introduce yourselves and give us a short pitch for your show as well? Yeah. Hi, I'm Guido. And I am Rob. And yes, we are the host of Dear Watchers, which is a comic book omniverse podcast. So on that, we do a deep dive into the multiverse, especially through the long running Marvel comic book series, What If? And we explore the storylines before and after that inspired or took inspiration from the alternate universe. And we're so excited to join you on this journey. I feel like we all need some sort of like travel hats or something for this <laughs> journey. Do you usually wear a travel hat, Guido? I don't know. I was picturing it. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I, I mean, I do enjoy a fine pith helmet. <laughs> I realize that pith helmets are a problematic image these days. but uh, They're so cool. Well, we need like Uwatu bald caps. Maybe that would be the most appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I'm down for this. Or maybe we could just get space helmets for, for Jessica and I, and then you could do the, the bald gaps. I like that. <laughs> exactly. Then we'd be quite a, a group when people mm. see us coming. <laughs> just mob down the street. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get started, let's talk about one cool thing that we have read or watched lately. Robin Guido, you're our guest of honor, so why don't you take it away? Sure. So I'm going to start with Radiant Black. I, I keep finding myself recommending it to people. I only started reading it maybe around issue six or seven. It's not too far into its run, but it keeps hitting me and I keep thinking about it. It starts, this is not a spoilery review, but it just starts as a really fun take on a superhero and, and young people becoming a superhero. And then it becomes something a whole lot more and very meta great use of the comic book structure. There are issues that make me cry and issues that really blow my mind with the art and the structure of the story. I, I'm loving it. So I'm going to have to recommend Radiant Black and I can't get enough of it. So I just read the first volume recently uh, on Hoopla. I think they just put it out. 
I have to say the second volume is, I can't wait for you to get there and hear your reaction to it because it's where it like really goes further. I love it all. I'm really excited. Well, if you listen to our podcast, you know I'm not as big of a comic person as Guido is. Of course, Guido is one of the biggest comics people on the planet, I think. <laughs> so it's, you know, I'm never going to measure up to his standards, but I'm a big horror guy. And one thing I've watched recently, and actually Guido watched it with me, is a new documentary that came out pretty recently about folk horror, and that's called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And it's a three-hour woman-directed documentary that explores the whole history of folk horror, not just kind of what we think of as folk horror, which is very British, but also explores it from a whole global perspective. So Japan, Eastern Europe, in the United States as well. It was put out by Severin, and it's actually available both as a single DVD or Blu-ray, but also on a big box set with 19 other folk horror movies, which of course I did get. Or only one movie into the box set. <laughs> but it's wintertime. It's it's the perfect time for folk horror. So that is something that I watched recently that I'm very excited about. One of my favorite movies ever is a documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street called, I think, Never Sleep Again. Oh, yes. It's great. As is the Camp Crystal Lake Memories, which is the Friday the 13th counterpoint to that. And actually, in the room I'm sitting in right now, I have on my wall the autographs of every Jason except for one. So which one are you missing? I'm missing the Jason from part three, I believe. And he is no longer with us. But, you know, I will certainly Uh, hunt it down at one point. The most of the other ones I have met in person and a few of them have also passed on to the great Crystal Lake in the sky. So definitely my franchise of choice. But that. Nightmare on Elm Street documentary is also pretty excellent. Yeah. Now I've got a soft spot for Jason. So Sarah and I, our anniversary is the 13th of September. And so (laughs) I remember there was one day where it was Friday the 13th was our anniversary. So we watched Jason X, which, you know, stars, I believe, Kane Hodder in his last role (laughs) as Jason, I think. Yes, it does. Yes, correct. (laughs) And actually, even the hoodie I have on my chair is from the diner in New Jersey that is featured in the first film that Guido and I <laughs> we, we went did have to, to go there <laughs> had to go there had some eggs in the morning and uh, walked around the little town and then of course had to watch the movie later that night not that it was my first time seeing it of course but well you know the couple that slays together <laughs> exactly <laughs> I like that <laughs> all right Jessica what have you been consuming lately Well, I'm ramping up to see a new Spider-Man movie. So at some point soon, I don't know when, we'll see. I'm still a little dodgy about theaters, so I may just wait until it comes out. But I'm still ramping up regardless. (laughs) (laughs) It just might be a long ramp. Exactly, exactly. So last night I rewatched Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. And tonight I'm going to be watching Into the Spider-Verse just for funsies. I know it's not part of the whole overhaul, but, you know, just for fun. I love Peter Parker. He is such a fucking gem. And Tom Holland playing him in particular, Spider-Man is just, he's so wholesome and he's kind and empathetic. And I like that he's the one hero or or seemingly one of the only heroes thinking about the innocent bystanders who are affected by the catastrophes that seem to be an inevitable part of being a superhero. 
So it's almost like being a superhero is the trolley question. Like, is collateral damage in human lives worth the battle that is happening at the time? And a lot of the time he's thinking of the little guy and trying to stop buildings from falling and stop a train full of people from, you know, falling to their doom or whatever the case is. So it just, I, I like that aspect of him. Yeah, I'm definitely a big Spidey fan. Yeah, I'm not. And your read on him, I like a lot because I can see it in the movies. I'm curious if it shows up in the comics in a similar way. But definitely in the movies, I can see, you know, you have like Doctor Strange and Iron Man are like the egocentric don't really care. They're just going to battle and not worry too much. And you have Spider-Man sort of cleaning up around them. And I, I like that idea a lot. That's a good read. Yeah. Even in the comics, we just had the holiday special and we talked about one of the Spider-Man issues where he goes to a hospital of children and he helps them by coming to be Spider-Man. And I mean, everybody's talking about all of the, the little good things that he's done. They're small acts, but they've made a huge impact on all these people's lives. And it's just like, you know, coming to sit with a terminally ill child and making him feel special or helping somebody in the street or they all had these really special memories of him just being a really good person and that almost is his is superpower right there yeah all right well so i'm currently reading a novel called forging hephaestus which is a superhero novel by this guy named drew hayes and i discovered hayes through his npc series which it's about a group of npcs non-playable characters in a role-playing game who then go on to have their own adventures and they're kind of like, you know, bubblegum pulp, but they're always really good and really fun to read. And so I wound up having a surplus of Audible credits and downloading this. And it's like, it's a chonker. It's like 20 hours long and I'm about halfway through it. I've been listening to it on my, my two hour walks with the dogs, but it's a, it's a blast. It's about this young supervillain who gets apprenticed into the guild of supervillains because at this point in time, heroes and villains have formed their own kind of like collective I, like kind of unions or guilds, you know, and she's navigating the world that she inhabits now. And it's really interesting and it's really fun and it's really original, too. It's a really fun collection of supervillains and superheroes that feel pretty fresh. Does it feel like the start of a world that there's going to be a lot more of or is it part of an existing world? So it's the first novel in the series. And also it's the first it, like I, I feel like there's at least two or three more. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's really fun. And Hayes thinks out his worlds really well and fleshes them out. And so a lot of the stuff that they're doing is they're going on these like training missions and learning how everything works. And and it's very thought out and it's very fun. And it moves along at a good clip, even though a lot of it's a lot of exposition. It's great seeing as how I've been listening to a lot of like political history lately. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice break. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what do you guys say that we get started and talk about the Marvel Alterniverse? We're ready. Yeah. All right. Yes. So it's pretty much impossible to talk about the Alterniverse without acknowledging what this short-lived imprint grew out of, which was Marvel's What If series. Now, Robin Guido, would you mind telling us a little bit about What If as the series and the first two volumes of the comic? Yeah, so What If Volume 1 starts in 1977. It runs for seven years, 47 issues. It gets abruptly canceled. In what I've read from interviews of the people who were working on it at the time, it was actually quite surprising. They had another issue in the can. This is 1984. It gets canceled. So that issue becomes a special in 1988. And that special sold well enough that they decided to go with a volume two. That ran from 89 to 98, 115 issues. 
And so it had a few retools across its run, one of which is what we're talking about today. And just some broader what if context, there's been no major ongoing since, though they keep trying with one shots some years or a few minis that have just happened or are forthcoming soon. And yeah, that's what if. Yeah, they were some of the earliest comics I discovered because back in the early 90s, they were really cheap. And they also provided a pretty good history to the larger Marvel Universe where they would show you the events that were leading up to the pivotal mm -hmm. moment that led to the deviation. And I loved them. They were a lot of fun. And then as time went on, they kind of went mm, a little downhill in terms of quality, <laughs> both story-wise and art. But like, but for, for a while, the first, I want to say like 40 issues or so, the art and the stories felt fantastic, like in volume two. And then I gradually started picking up volume one as well, which also had a lot of fun stuff. Well, I think what I've learned, because I had never read What If until we actually started the podcast, but what I've learned is they are at their best when they are actually doing an alternate universe question. Sometimes the question that's on the cover isn't really the question that they're asking. And you probably also saw this on the Disney Plus TV show some sometimes it's not quite it's just oh we want to tell this other story it's not really an alternate universe story but when it really taps yeah. into that and just okay let's see that sliding doors kind of thing of changing one thing how does that change so much for this character that's when the series really takes off yeah I hard agree okay so Jessica we've talked a bit about the state of Marvel Comics and how it changed over the course of the early 90s would you mind giving us a quick summary yeah absolutely in 1992 a ton of the top Marvel artists got really fed up with the practices how they were being treated and they left and they formed Image Comics and Marvel was already kind of on shaky grounds but that really solidified the their kind of issues and Things just started getting a little bit more frantic in Marvel around that time. They had a CEO that was doing a bunch of weird spending BS <laughs> and kind of running things into the ground in that way. He ended up leaving with a bunch of his cronies and, <laughs> you know, so it just things weren't going well, just generally. Yeah, good old Ron Perlman, a.k.a. <laughs> the former Mr. Ellen Barkin. Yeah, so... <laughs> That was a whole big thing. That's really, a, it's a very watered down version, but that was the shaky business of Marvel at that point. Their stocks yeah. were having issues and they were selling off rights. Yeah, it was not great. It's not great. Yeah, it was a dark time. A dark timeline, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I was a very proud young stockholder. And when they filed for bankruptcy, I lost my Marvel stock. So I was very upset at that time. No, I was probably really? 12. So you didn't get any, you, you didn't get any, like, when they came back or, like, anything like that? No, when a company files for bankruptcy, I learned so much about bankruptcy, I oh, feel like, when man. I was 12, because my parents had bought me this Marvel stock, and then it meant nothing. It was, it literally was valued at zero, and I could do nothing with it ever again. So. God, that sucks. Because I know, I remember being a journalist and covering the Disney acquisition, and I remember, like, Marvel stockholders got x amount of money i think mm -hmm. they got like one and a half shares of disney or something like that in exchange i could be way off on that it's been forever since i looked at that but yeah that that really sucks man and jessica actually recently inherited some books that were included in it were the marvel like quarterly or annual reports those are great i i collect them i have a few from my subscription as a stockholder but i don't have them all and i do track them down 
Because they're like what ifs where you can find them in dollar bins, but if you try to seek them out on eBay, like people are overcharging for them and they have fun art, totally original art in them. And sometimes they tell a little mini story around like the really boring graphs that they're sticking in it. (laughs) I love them. But yeah, getting back on track, things were definitely getting weird at the House of Ideas, like between the departure of so much top talent and all the boardroom shenanigans that were going on. Marvel was in a really dicey financial situation. Um, After Jim Shooter was fired by Marvel in 1987, he was succeeded by Tom DeFalco as editor-in-chief, and DeFalco served as editor-in-chief until 1995. And then he stepped down to resume writing duties, like it's even on his Wikipedia page. But he gave an interview to comic book historians in 2020 noting that he was totally fired by Marvel's senior leadership because they didn't feel he was a team player. And it's a really interesting conversation. We'll include the link in the show notes. But it's a rather lengthy story, basically in the midst of a larger conversation where a bunch of executives were demonstrating that they just did not understand a working knowledge of the comics industry. Basically, they started out saying they were planning to cancel half their comics, and that would make the remaining books sell twice as much. And I don't know, that might work with like utilitarian products that like everybody needs to buy, but that's not how entertainment brands worked. And then this happened. Jessica, if you want to read us this amazing quote. Then they started talking about buying their own distributor. And I remember saying that this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard by life. And also when they bought Malibu, I was not supportive of the idea. So basically they could tell that I was not a team player for their team. And they decided that they wanted to make a change. It's their company. They're entitled to it. So they informed me that they don't need me as editor-in-chief anymore. They were going to, you know, give me a job where they sent me to Europe. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm out of here. I felt like I needed to read that with, like, extra salt. Absolutely. I think it was intended to have that extra salt. So good, good reading. I have to say, I actually am really enjoying how a lot of the big names have retired from comics and now they're just spilling all the tea mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in interviews like this. It's amazing. So DeFalco was fine. Like after all this went down, he said Marvel gave him a really generous writing contract the following Monday. And what wound up happening was instead of naming a successor, Marvel's leadership split the company's comic lines into different verticals. Bob Harris continued to oversee the X-Men titles. Mark Gruenwald helmed the new Marvel Heroes imprint. Bob Budiansky helmed the Spider-Man titles. Bobby Chase took over the Marvel Edge imprint. And Carl Potts oversaw the license books and Marvel Alterniverse imprint. And now we're at the point of the story where we get to start talking about the period of our episode. Now, Wikipedia says this about the imprint. Robert Guido, it's on you. For a brief period between 1995 and 1996, all what-if stories were labeled as Marvel Alterniverse, which included the likes of Ruins, The Last Avengers Story, and Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe. Yep. So the Alterniverse comics had this very distinct logo with this kind of globe dissolving into smaller ones. I actually spent some time looking at the what-if covers from this era, and I actually confirmed that the issues of what ifs 76 through 86 they all feature the alternaverse logo in the masthead but the funny thing is that none of those were collected into a volume in fact the alternaverse visions book that we're going to talk about that marvel did publish has a bunch of what if issues 
from before that imprint actually started, which is ridiculous because. <laughs> but on brand. Yeah, but several of the Alternatives What If comics were actually X-Men stories, so it's just wild. Okay, Robert Guido, I'm curious, like, you're the resident What If experts. Had you ever heard of this before we started talking to you about it? Yes, I was familiar primarily through the What Ifs. I knew that these few other titles used the logo, but it was mainly this era of What If. And they're actually in the letters pages of those titles of the ones that have that logo on it. They actually start with information about the new logo, which was designed by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft. And they talk oh. about that this is a new moment in What If. Because, of course, so the first time they use the Alterniverse masthead, that's the last appearance of Uatu in the What If titles. So they were clearly trying to do something different. They don't give him a big send off or anything, sadly. And then it runs, as you said, those 10 issues with the Alterniverse imprint. And then once the Alterniverse imprint disappears from it, they do another retool, starting with issue 87, where they actually stop asking a question for the rest of the run. Interesting. Okay. And so they just become like, what if starring Sabretooth? What if starring Archangel? That's really funny that Starkings did that too. Like I always forget that he was working in the industry before he did his Elephant Man stuff for uh, Image. Like, and I I know that he did. I just always forget. <laughs> I love too about the logo that they put the little logo of the subject mm-hmm. of the what if in the dissolving Earth. So the Alterniverse yeah. logo is like that dissolving Earth, and then there will be like the little X or the little four. Or for Hulk, it's just a green dot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, that's that's actually way more information than I was able to dig up, like just on the web, because there's so little documentation about the Alterniverse. And likewise, the actual information that I have been able to come across, it's extremely uneven and contradictory. Like, for example, one of the Wikipedia entries referring to this label notes that there's also a Punisher book called A Man Named Frank that was published as one of the Alterniverse books, but I can't find anything confirming that anywhere else. Like when I looked it up, the Punisher stories appears to have come out about a year before the label was actually a part of the Marvel catalog. And it doesn't feature the Alterniverse logo either. So we're not going to talk about it in this episode, mainly because it doesn't seem to be part of the canon narrative. And likewise, it took me a while to find any site that listed the Alterniverse what-if issues. But yeah, it generally feels like Marvel was using the Alterniverse books as a kind of a response to the success that DC was having with their Elseworlds books at the time, which were kind of at the peak of their popularity. The previous summer in 94, DC did a summer event where all the annuals were Elseworld stories. And it makes sense that Marvel would want a single label to put all their multiverse stories under basically to create a better unified brand and the alternative stories feel like they're kind of aping the general idea of elseworlds popular characters who um, are in other worlds and settings though the themes here tend to be a lot bleaker or or more dark than what we were seeing in the original what if stories mm-hmm. so now that we've got the background covered we're going to talk about A couple of different books. And the first one up is The Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe. So, Jessica, you want to give us a summary of this one? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So Frank Castle is living his life, minding his own business when he hears that there is a superhuman fight happening in the park nearby where his wife and children are playing. They end up being collateral damage, and when Castle shows up and finds that they've been killed, he flips out and kills a few of the heroes. He stands trial, is found guilty, and given a life sentence, but he instead ends up being a mercenary for victims of other superhero interactions. His job now is to punish the superheroes who are giving no heed to the innocent bystanders that they hurt or kill along the way. He picks them off one by one at first, but is told that he is not working fast enough, so he plans bigger and bigger plots uh, to kill groups of them, including planning a battle on the moon between two warring sides of mutants and telling Bolt that the other was inviting them to, to battle. Classic bait and switch. <laughs> it's so good. I actually, I did giggle at that a little bit because I was like, actually, that's pretty clever. They got into this whole, wait a second. I didn't invite you here. You invited <laughs> me here. He's like, no, you invited me here. <laughs> Love it. And then he just nukes the moon. You know, of course, casual. <laughs> <laughs> so he can take them all out at once. I mean, it, it works, apparently. I, you know, no resolution on what happened to the moon. <laughs> or the fact that he nuked it or the fact that that has to do with you know it fucks with our planet if the moon is fucked with, i you know whatever but whatever who cares <laughs> <laughs> so he goes through over 500 superhumans or mutants and his last target is daredevil but twist daredevil is revealed to be frank's longtime friend from childhood so Punisher does take Daredevil out and then turns the gun on himself to truly end the cycle. Yeah, it's pretty much a, a pure distillation of Garth Ennis's storytelling. <laughs> yes, it's a Shakespeare tragedy. Everybody is dead. Mm -hmm. We got to call Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dead <laughs> off scene. Also dead. Yeah, well, it's funny because this is arguably the most popular of the Alterniverse books. It's gotten really popular since it was first published. Its first print regularly sells for like over 60 bucks, but it's also been reprinted several times since it came out in 95. The most recent one was the sixth printing, which came out in 2008. But it's also noteworthy because this is the first Punisher story that Garth Ennis did, and he really became synonymous with the Punisher brand over the next 15 years or so. Like, he is considered one of the defining authors of Punisher stories. I'm curious, how did everyone feel about this story? I liked this story a lot. It's not my typical brand of story, particularly things with guns and the Punisher. But I have to admit that I still enjoyed him just immediately <laughs> shooting and killing Cyclops in the head without a it single second passing by <laughs> just <laughs> just turns to him and shoots him so it i found it really fun i think the art is good and the panel breakdowns move the story along just as you described jessica you know it does make sense and the whole book makes sense i mean if you treat it as something a little lighter than it is like a light violent thing which i think is a garth ennessy thing to do i enjoyed it yeah, I think it's a different kind of darkness than some of these other books that we're going to be discussing has. Yeah. To your point, Jessica, I think blowing up the moon, I think they do intend that <laughs> to be 
funny in some way. And as you said, Guido, like the ending, yes, is kind of dark, but even the idea that he's ending this cycle of killing the superpowered people by killing himself is in there. The one funny thing that I was getting this is I know blank kills the blank universe has kind of become a thing. But mm. a few years yeah. ago, I actually read a comic called it was a series of comics called Toy Man Kills the Full Moon Universe. And I don't know if you know what Full Moon is, but that's Charles Band's universe of movies. So it's the Puppet Master movies and it's the Evil Bong oh, movies. Yeah. And Toy okay. Man is basically and Ginger Dead Man. Ginger Dead Man. Oh, those are all part of the Full Moon universe. And Toy Man is basically the Punisher, only he's the size of an action figure. And he goes through and kills all these other like mutants and evil bongs and stuff like that. So I had read that a couple of years ago. So reading this was like, oh, wait a second. This is kind of deja vu. Wasn't he like a cop from another planet and he yes. was like miniature? On his planet, he's normal size. But then he comes to Earth and he's about four inches tall. Yes. <laughs> but he but he's still got like hyper powered weapons that are killing exactly. people. If I remember yes. Right, and right? He yeah. He basically okay. is this Punisher badass kind of guy. So it was very weird reading this because that's all I could think of the entire time. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. <laughs> I think I actually enjoyed this the most, too. Like it. It felt, um, you know, there there are notes of the boys in there, which Garth Ennis also wrote, where there is that kind of like very dark humor making a very dark scenario a little bit more palatable for lack of a better term but yeah it's one of those books where it feels like it shouldn't work in the premise and then somehow everything just kind of comes together to create something greater than the sum of its parts that's interesting you say that because i actually was going to say that i like the premise of it the fact that he's just like hella pissed that you know <laughs> he sees this happening and he's just like oh hell no i'm gonna stop all of them but he i mean he doesn't even really have a choice he's forced into it like it starts as an act of vengeance and then it turns into something like he has to do but then he feels driven to do it because he still sees it all like still happening around the world so i don't know to me it like this one like logically story plot line within these universes made the most sense to me Oh, yeah, I'll 100% agree with that. Like, as a as a larger cohesive story. I mean, the what-ifs, the, the little mini what-ifs were cutesy and, you know, whatever. But this, in and of itself, as a larger story, really felt like it had a very solid roller coaster plot line for us to go mm -hmm. on, you know? Well, in a character arc, everything exactly. you're describing is, yeah. like, there is actually an arc that Frank Castle's going through, yeah. which for a story that's so simple in its premise feels like there shouldn't be an arc for a character, but there actually is that you're pointing to. Yeah. It almost feels like he's processing his grief and loss through doing this. You know, what he sees as an act for the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you guys say? We move on to the last Avenger story. <laughs> do we I, like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, we'll make it quick. <laughs> I think Rob liked it. I have to. I have to give you a warning. I did I actually en it. enjoy it, but, you know. <laughs> but we can. The rest of us can continue to treat it for what it's worth. Yes. Yeah. I didn't love it. I just. I did like it. I'll say yes. All right. Okay, so the last Avenger story was released as a quote prestige format miniseries. It was written by Peter David, who is a longtime writer who is particularly known for his work on the Hulk, and. 
Ariel Olivetti, who I think is from Argentina, who's got a very painterly style of illustration. All right, Jessica, could you also give us a summary of this one, too? Yeah. Does it make it more prestigious that we've read it? Do we have more of a prestige ourselves that we've read this <laughs> prestige format? <laughs> well, something that makes it prestigious, I don't know if either of you have the hard copy. It actually has a clear acetate cover. And so Stop. the last Avengers story, the ruins, they yeah. all have clear acetate covers on them, which they then did with a bunch of things called Marvel Tales around that same time, 95, 96. So it does feel quite fancy, I have to say. Fancy and expensive. <laughs> oh. Well, wow. yeah, that was something that they really started doing with Marvels, right? The Kurt Busiek and yeah. Alex Ross miniseries. So I feel like that was kind of enough of a success where they were trying to ape that again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it conceals what's inside, ironically, because it's a clear cover. I've got the series for Ruins, but I don't have the last Avengers story. I'll have to track it down and pick it up. I know that they're not going for a lot. No, and it was also just reprinted as a Marvel Tales within the last few months. Oddly. Yeah, we were talking about that. And there's a little note talking about the Alterniverse that gives a very sanitized version of how that imprint came to be, but not really providing any yeah. real insight. Yeah, Ralph Macchio's introduction to the reprint of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're up, Jessica. Ah, uh, yeah. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> this thing was okay. This was like these issues were chonky and they just were like pew, 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 pew the whole time. So basically, the robot Ultron, he wants revenge on the Avengers. And so he places a document about their downfall into a time capsule. And then, like, Centuries later, Kang the Conqueror comes around, finds it, and he's like, oh, perfect. And then he's like, this is what I'll do then. I guess this is how this goes down. And so he just starts the cycle all over again. It's a lot of death. We get a lot of back and forth seeing, like, the first set of the Avengers Doom. And then we get to see the downfall of the secondary, like, now in time within the story. So it's, it's very whiplashy. It's a lot of back and forth. And actually, I found it hard to follow sometimes. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, yeah. It's very confusing. Like, first of all, who are you? And I'm arguably, I'm not as familiar with the newer characters. And so sometimes I was like, I don't know who you are. You're probably going to die soon. So I, I don't really <laughs> care to invest my time in figuring it out. So have a good life. What's left of it? Yeah. So that was kind of how I approached it. So. Please correct me in your guys' readings, because I watered that shit down so heavily. No, I mean, I was really confused by you the new She-Hulk, because I was sitting there and I'm like, oh, did she become a member of the SWAT? Like, did she become a SWAT team member? And no, it's her daughter, mm -hmm. but but she's named Jessie. Oh, yeah. And so I wasn't sure if they, that was a mistake or something. And then I think in the next issue, they refer to her as Wingfoot. So she's, I guess... She-Hulk oh, and Wyatt Wingfoot, Wingfoot's uh, daughter, I, but it's not really explained. I, okay. I didn't even figure that out. Well, I think I did not figure that out. I just thought it was She-Hulk. I think what's confusing about her inclusion is she's really the only new character of note. Everyone else is the older versions of the other characters, except for the evil Ultron, who's a new version of Ultron. So it is very odd that she looks just like She-Hulk. But she's not She-Hulk, but everyone else is a classic Avengers character. Well, and then the other thing that, that I didn't catch until my second read-through was the new Grim Reaper who has teamed up with Ultron is one of the Scarlet Witch's kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I did notice that. But like, but it's again like a one little throwaway line. 
you know. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. too distracted by all of Hulk's bare ass throughout the issue to, well, <laughs> to really piece together what else was going on because he's naked while he's tearing Tigra apart. So it's a very disturbing art to me. <laughs> Olivetti's art is very visceral and he has that very painterly style, but it's also really unique and it's, for lack of a better term, very raw mm-hmm. the way it feels. And it's really cool. There's nothing else like it. Yeah, I like the art a lot. I'm a big Richard Corbin fan who was also doing something very similar with this painted style. Richard Corbin also worked with some of the 2080, lots of heavy metal stuff, the magazine, not the music genre. So definitely you can see those reflections in this. So I liked it. There are a lot of butts in it of many (laughs) sorts and many outfits that look very uncomfortable. Lots of wedgies, I think, happening. But aside from that, I did like the grotesquery of some of the art i'm curious how david's story would have worked with different art honestly because mm. i i, I yeah. do find what you just said mike it, the the tone of the art is what really makes the story feel really dark and i don't know if the story is even though there's a lot of death in it but there's death in other what ifs or there's death in the punisher that we just talked about and this one just feels like dark in a way I don't even want to engage, I think, because the art. I'm curious if David's story would work differently, perhaps better to me with more comic booky art. Well, yeah. And on top of that, you know, Wikipedia notes that David actually wound up writing the story back in the 80s and then shelved it because of, quote, editorial meddling. And I couldn't really validate a lot of that, but the claims backed up by the following footnote from the key collector app written in 1986 but delayed until 1996 because marvel editors felt the story moved too slow (laughs) which is interesting because there's a lot of death i don't know (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot happening so i'm surprised to read that yeah and so you mentioned that there was a reprint that hit store shelves on december 22nd i think that was the week that we were originally planning to record this episode and yeah ironic You know, so this is apparently part of the Marvel Tales reprint series that they've been doing. Like, I'm not familiar with the Marvel Tales reprints other than they're kind of collecting some stuff from the 90s from what I've seen or early aughts. Well, it feels like, too, what they're doing is and I'm assuming it's the presence of Kang because I think they're doing it a little bit based on the MCU. So they just did a Marvel Tales of Ms. Marvel reprinting some of her first appearances. They did a Genus Vell Captain Marvel yeah, that that's was the one I saw. More comic related, but the Miss Marvel one feels very MCU driven. So maybe the presence of Kang in this is what got it a reprint. I checked too to see if they possibly adjusted the bare behinds of these characters, and they did not. They left them in. I was quite surprised, actually. Wow. I don't feel like we really need to ask how everyone felt about the story because we already aired our, aired our opinions. So. Know, none of us could hold back. I think the thing, I, the reason why I said I liked it and obviously liked it a bit more than the three of you is not the story, which I agree gets very confusing. You kind of just have to like forget that. I like some of the world building, the alternative verse elements of it. The fact that Hawkeye is blind now and his life with Mockingbird. The fact that janet van dyne is shrinking one inch per year because of a mishap i thought that was really interesting and that to me is the peter david aspect of it and maybe goes back to this kind of central question of what if we had been presented those ideas with maybe a more traditional comic style art i think 
it would have maybe fused better for all of you. I didn't find it super dark, frankly, because I think those parts kept it a little light. He does insert a little bit more humor into it than at least the next book that we're going to discuss. Well, yeah. And I mean, Peter David is really funny when he wants to be like we were talking about that in our holiday episode where his Hanukkah story where Doc Samson is just yes ending a bunch of bratty, <laughs> you know, kids in, in Hebrew school. Like that was fantastic. Well, I guess on that note, we should move on to ruins, which is Earth 9591. Oh, yeah. Like I forgot to mention that all of these books are designated their own Earths. So I guess the Punisher kills the Marvel Universe is Earth 95126. The last Avengers story is Earth 9511. And the one that we're discussing now is Earth 9591. So Ruins was, again, another two-issue miniseries. But instead of an original imaginary setting, what we've got is it's billed as a parody of the iconic Marvel series that Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross had done a year prior. And they'd received insane acclaim and success for the story this time is handled by Warren Ellis, and there's painted artwork that was handled by Therese Nielsen, her husband Cliff Nielsen, and then Chris Muller, who takes over for the last 17 pages of the second issue. And there's a number of similarities between Marvels and Ruins. Both are narrated by Daily Bugle reporter Phil Sheldon as he explores his world and works on notes for his book about these, quote, Marvels who inhabit it. And both the books feature painted artwork and acetate covers that we discussed earlier. But Ruins is essentially a twisted nihilistic version of a Marvel universe that has collided with Murphy's Law. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong, or it already has gone wrong. So in this reality, President X, who is a twisted version of Xavier, has taken over the U.S., and the Avengers are a radical secessionist group from California rebelling against an oppressive government. And the story starts with Sheldon watching the last Avengers Quinjet getting blown out of the sky, which supposedly kills Captain America and Giant Man and Wasp and Iron Man. Sheldon visits a Korean internment camp in Nevada, which was on a nuclear test site, and interviews Captain Marvel, who's dying of cancer. Marvel says an invasion force was coming to Earth, but they were sidetracked when they found the corpse of the Silver Surfer. The power cosmic that was coming from the surfer's body was interfering with their scanners, so they couldn't detect a nuclear barrage from Earth, which destroyed 90% of their warships. Later, he meets Nick Fury, who's a paranoid lunatic, and he's claiming that Captain America introduced him to cannibalism. <laughs> Fury shoots Jean Grey, who's a prostitute that interrupted their conversation, and then he kills himself. And then the next interview is with a morphine-addicted Rick Jones, who tells the story of Bruce Banner saving him from the gamma bomb test, like in the original origin of the Hulk. But this time, Banner turned into a mass of pulsing tumors. And then later on, he's sitting next to Raven Darkholm on a plane, but she has multiple personality disorder in this reality, and she's forgotten to take her medication. So she shapeshifts uncontrollably and causes herself to die when her, quote, brain implodes. Subsequently, government agents take away the remains. When the plane lands, one of them shoves Magneto, which damages the homemade degaussing kit that he made to dampen his powers. Magneto basically goes nuclear, and he's killed when all the metal objects, including a jet, come hurtling towards him. And then we're given a tour of the special prison in Texas by Warden Wilson Fisk, and it's revealed that the inmates are all mutants who've been mutilated in an effort to control their powers. Examples of that include Cyclops being blinded and Quicksilver having had all of his limbs amputated. Fisk reveals that Sheldon's getting the tour because President X knew he was dying and he wanted to grant a dying man his final wish. 
After that, he interviews Ben Grimm, who is living in the mountain somewhere. And Grimm explains that he refused to pilot Reed Richards' spaceship due to safety concerns. So Reed had Victor Von Doom pilot it instead. And then we get to see the photos showing us the remains of the world's Fantastic Four, who all died really gruesomely when their powers manifested. And then finally, Sheldon decides to start writing his book, which he's going to title Marvels, but he's run out of the medication that he had been given after he was infected with a virus given to him by former Daily Bugle photographer Peter Parker. Parker had been experimenting with an irradiated spider and then passed a virus that he'd contracted onto Sheldon at the office. The virus rapidly overtakes Sheldon and he dies in an alley and then all of the notes for his books scatter. Like, did I miss anything? There was a lot going on in that. <laughs> I think you got And there's like a lot of different little side notes that give us extra details about a ton of other Marvel characters and they're like little one note things and I just don't have time to go into all of them. <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that this is another Alterniverse book that's gotten really popular on the secondary market. The first issue doesn't go for much. You can usually pick it up for $10 or so, but the second issue is routinely selling for $50 or more. My guess is that there was just a smaller print run for that, and it's got a much more limited supply. And that said, Marvel reprinted the series as a single issue in 2009. They might try to reprint this later on, but I suspect it's going to be a while since Warren Ellis has become persona non grata after a lot of women came out in 2020 and accused him of grooming young women for decades, and he acknowledged that behavior. Like, people are still pretty anti-Ellis these days. Ben Templesmith announced that he was going to work with Ellis on their old series, Fell, for Image Comics, and Image wound up basically backtracking from the series after the ensuing outcry. Well, this so, does include the line, how old are you, Gene? Old as you need. So, maybe uh, that's how you need. that scene with Gene the prostitute. <laughs> I did take note of that, too. Yeah. Like, how did everyone feel about this story? I'm curious. To this, I had a visceral reaction of hating it. Far more. The other one, I can see some of the flaws in it. But for this one, I I really just disliked it from almost the get-go. I think, for one thing, I think where the other story succeeds is it's twisting these characters that we know, you know, years later. Here, though... We never get to see the Fantastic Four never become heroes. They're killed instantly. The Hulk never becomes a hero. He's killed instantly. I don't even really see the impetus for the story within the story because these are all just freak accidents. I don't see what makes them so special. These could be things that exist in our universe, really. And to me, just the overall writing style, and I go into this with no preconceived notions of who Warren Ellis is, but to me, this reminded me of when I was in drama school and suddenly freshmen, for the first time, can write something like that's dark that they couldn't write in high school. And they've seen Reservoir Dogs and Boondock Saints for the first time. And like, they're just going to throw everything against the wall and I'm going to make it as dark as possible. And that's what makes something good. And that's really the experience i got from this only i'm guessing warren ellis was not a freshman in college when he wrote this story no he had already i think made a name for himself with marvel by that point in time he did some wolverine stuff back in the 90s but he was also already i think having a lot of success with transmetropolitan and he took over x-force for a pretty significant run and it was probably right around this year 95 maybe it was mm. 95 96 and Jessica, you recounted that great story from the Christmas episode of, of Peter Parker visiting those sick children. But it's clear in this universe, he just contaminated all those children in the first place and he's responsible. So that's what it would be in this universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This whole thing was intense. Like, 
everything was just like full throttle. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was a little exhausted by the end of this one because I just felt like the whole time it was just like going and going and going. I felt like I'd run like three miles after, you know, after I finished reading it. I have to say, though, I kind of liked the gruesome way that it was illustrated. Like, story aside, it had a very 90s, like, watercolor, scary stories you tell in the dark but add color, (laughs) you know? And so I did like that vibe because I'm kind of a spooky kid. I loved all that shit when I was a kid. So I was like, okay, well, the style's right up my alley, but the story, like, I could give or take, honestly. And, And some of the stuff went a little far. I really didn't like the mutants and the different superheroes being locked up and them having had limbs removed. It just felt a little too close to things that we actually do to people, (laughs) you know, when we're scared of them as a group. I could name a few examples, but I'm sure you guys could too. So, you know, that felt a little real. Yeah, it, I'm not, I don't know. I think I read it originally in like around 2003, 2004. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I kind of like it because it's taking all these familiar things that I know and it's twisting it in a way that I don't. And I've really soured on it over time because the entire story just feels ugly and nihilistic and, and mean. And, you know, I mean, my tastes have changed as I've gotten older, and that is definitely not what I gravitate towards anymore. Yeah, I think it's the element of satire. You know, one of my favorite comics I read, if not my favorite comic I read in 2021, was Ed Pisker's Red Room, which is certainly not for everyone. It's very dark. But what Ed Pisker does is he weaves this element of satire throughout. And you see the through the looking glass version of our own world here. I was it was interesting, Mike, when you explained it as a parody, because and I was talking to Guido about this, too, after I had read it, because I did not get any kind of parody. And I, of course, did not know Marvel. So I didn't see that version of it. But still, like I did not get an ounce of levity at all in any of this. No, and that's the thing is it's constantly billed as a satire or a parody, but there's no humor. There's no levity to undercut everything. I have to be the odd person out this time and say, I like it a bit as vignettes. So I don't mm-hmm. think it works like as a two-issue story. I don't think it works as something anyone would ever pick up to read. But now there are vignettes like you, Jessica, that I find abhorrent. The Jean Grey being one that just needs to be cut out of the book. But stuff like the Rick Jones Hulk retelling. Stuff like the Mystique, I find those just fun little vignettes of like, oh, Mystique, this makes sense why this would happen. It makes sense that Hulk would be grotesque in this way. And the name ruins, right? It sort of, to me, that names it as the parody, right? It's saying like, look, I'm going to show you if everything you saw as marvelous gets ruined. So I appreciate it as vignettes, but it's very imperfect. I agree with everything you've all said, but I do like, I think, more bits of it than it sounds like perhaps the rest of you. (laughs) That's fair. Okay, so we are now on to the final official Alternative Risk book, which was published in 96, and it's a a collection of what-if comics from the early to mid-90s, and it's called X-Men Alternative Visions. Robin Guido, can you give us the TLDR summary of the stories contained in this volume? Yes, I'm up first, which is what if Storm of the X-Men remained a thief? And we actually covered this issue on episode seven of Dear Watchers. This is Earth 92800. 
And what if Storm of the X-Men remained a thief is actually what if Storm never went to Africa and met Professor X. So on this earth, Storm is a pickpocket and a burglar going by the name Jack Black and is mentored by a kindly elderly white thief named Herman and a prostitute named Marie. After Herman has a run-in with the X-Men, an angry Storm and tangles with them and defeats the mutant team. But as the battle concludes, she meets Professor X, who explains they were just trying to steal a jewel to save the Earth. You know, no big deal. So ultimately, rather than stay with Herman or join the X-Men, Storm decides to embrace the true Aurora and enters on a journey of self-discovery in Africa. Then we have What If Wolverine Led Alpha Flight, which is essentially what if Wolverine had remained a captive of Alpha Flight after that original X-Men battle. The X-Men return to try to save him, but North Star deletes their communication attempt. And so part of the X-Men actually die. Wolverine decides to join Alpha Flight in a battle with Annihilus. He discovers that he prefers negotiating over using his fists. And he finds out that Jean Grey has been held captive in the Hellfire Club. The X-Men who survived, it turns out, have still been operating, but that was concealed from Wolverine. So Alpha Flight and Wolvie go to try to save Jean Grey. She reveals Northstar's duplicity to try to get Wolverine to kill him. He ends up killing Jean instead, and she thanks him. And Uatu tells us that many people are saved because she never became Dark Phoenix, and Wolverine stays with Alpha Flight to help lead them. And then we have What If Wolverine Battled Weapon X. And on this Ugh. Earth, What If, <laughs> instead of becoming Weapon X, Logan fought Weapon X. So another guy, De Hardines, a Marine from Canada, becomes Weapon X. He escapes from Department H, then Alpha Flight, goes on a rampage. Logan decides to be a vigilante, essentially, and stop him. Logan learns in the meantime that he was supposed to be the Weapon X subject. And after Weapon X kills most of Alpha Flight, Logan, looking like the Punisher, comes along and fights him, keeps his logic, doesn't revert to his animal instinct, and is therefore able to win, decides to release the Department H secrets and expose them, and is satisfied at the end, though Wolverine never existed to join the X-Men in this world. And we finally move away from Wolverine to discuss what <laughs> if Rogue possessed the power of Thor. And this is Earth 941066, and it retells Avengers Annual 10, the first appearance of Rogue. So there's no Uatu in this issue, but instead we are seeing a vision from the imprisoned Destiny while she waits for Rogue and Mystique to break her and the other evil mutants out of jail. And in, in her vision, after taking the powers of both Ms. Marvel and Captain America, Rogue also siphons Thor's powers, even taking control of Mjolnir, or Magic Hammer, I can never say it correctly. But she takes Mjolnir. Thank you. But she takes too much and goes mad, defeating the Avengers and killing several of them in the process. Meanwhile, on this Earth, Rogue and Mystique break the evil mutant slash freedom force out of prison. However, a fight between Rogue and Blob and Pyro breaks out on their escape jet that kills everyone on board except Rogue. Despondent, Loki appears and convinces Rogue's broken mind to help him conquer Asgard. A huge battle ensues between Rogue and Loki and the Asgardians, surviving Avengers, and the Fantastic Four. However, Rogue's inherent goodness prevents her from killing Odin. 
Rogue then hears the voice of Thor telling her that she is now the new Thor and with that newfound knowledge defeats Loki and takes the role of the new god of thunder and Odin's daughter. And we return at the end to Destiny as our narrator, presumably in the 616, telling us that this world did not actually occur. And finally, in this volume, we have What If Strife Killed the X-Men, which is essentially What If Strife and mostly Apocalypse actually killed the X-Men. This is now referring us back to the Executioner's song crossover of the early 90s. Which we should note has a capital X. Yes. It starts with a capital X. X dash Kushner's. (laughs) My favorite thing is 90s extreme with capital X's. Absolutely. And so Apocalypse Instead of helping the X-Men to defeat Strife, his technovirus cure doesn't work, so Xavier dies. And in the moment he dies, Strife is psychically distracted and accidentally kills Cyclops and Jean by denying them oxygen on the moon. Slowly, each X-Men ends up getting killed by either Strife, mostly Apocalypse, or sometimes Archangel's Wings. And Cable tries to convince Strife that Apocalypse is the true enemy. The remaining X-Teams all join together. Apocalypse kills most of them. Cable and Strife team up against him. Strife and Apocalypse end up in a time vortex. And Cable ends up in the end leading the remaining X-Men as the new X-Men team, where he'll fuse his vision with Professor Xavier's. And that's our volume of Alterniverse Visions. (laughs) That last one was a wild ride. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm curious, what was the standout story in this volume for everyone? I'm going to go first because hands down, my favorite story was what if Rogue had Thor's powers? (laughs) That sarcastic, maniacal smile she has on her face when she figures out how fucking powerful she is. And she picks up the hammer and she's just like, oh, yeah, daddy's in town. She just has this look. I love it. I love it. And I dig the idea of Rogue accidentally taking on godlike powers just generally. She's just such a fun character. The other aspect I really like is that once Rogue takes over all of Thor's powers and Loki shows up on the scene, he does this cool thing where he just has no issue accepting that he now has a sister. Hmm. Like, just full stop. Like, you're my sister. It was really cool. I really liked how that worked out. So, yeah, like he was able to meet her where she was at, like knowing I'm still related to you because you absorbed all of my brother's powers. (laughs) effectively killed him but you know since you have so much of his powers you're effectively my sibling and i accept that of you yeah that was a nice moment robin guido what was a what was a stand-up for you guys i think i have to stick with what if storm remained a thief i there's things i appreciate about the alpha flight and the rogue stories the other two i could definitely do without but the what if storm remained a thief while it doesn't do the thing I like about most what ifs, which is really show a divergent path, because in the end of that, what if you end up very similar to the status quo we know, and that's not my favorite style of what if, but the art and the writing, it's Anne Nascenti, I'm just really a big fan of. It plays a little bit with identity in Storm and her gender presentation in a way that I like. And so that one is special to me. Yeah, I agree. We talked a bit about on our podcast that you could totally see it as a trans or 
otherwise gender allegory she goes by jack black almost the entire issue it's only at the very end when herman actually calls her jack and she says no i'm not going to go by jack anymore and of course we've always heard about these kind of queer representation in the x-men but it definitely seems very explicit there and i definitely like that there's this circular nature that of course xavier finds her in africa in the actual 616 and here she ends in africa but she is not actually uh, joining the x-men she's going to go on another journey so there's an interesting aspect of it where maybe she will join the x-men maybe she'll remain in africa we don't quite know maybe she'll take another path so i think i love that but also going back to what you said jessica i do think the rogue issue is very fun so that's pretty much tied with me there the one thing i really love is that she then starts to speak like Thor, but still also has her rogue-isms at the same time and is still speaking in the Southern dialect with, like, sugars thrown in there, but also with, like, these and all these mighty proclamations. So I think that is really fun. And overall, it's just a really fun issue. Weren't they also using, like, the same font for Thor's text as well? Yes. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah, I actually really liked those two stories as well. I liked both the one featuring Storm as well as the one featuring Rogue with Thor's powers. The standout to me, though, was the what if Wolverine fought Weapon X because I thought it was so bad. Like, I was just laughing about it because, A, it was such a non-story. It was just basically an excuse to have a giant fight sequence between Wolverine and another guy with claws. But it felt really lazy storytelling wise. Like, I think there was a bit where they're looking at the guy who had volunteered and basically acknowledging that, like, they don't even have his actual information. Like, they don't know his backstory at all. There's like, I don't know. He's just some guy who volunteered and his mind shattered. Yeah. So. And Guido did have to look it up that he does not exist in anything else because we weren't sure if he no. was just ra- a random character, which is what he is. Faceless Canadian. Yes, a naked, <laughs> a naked faceless Canadian. Uh, there's yeah, another battle true. of uh, with lots of nudity in it. <laughs> there's a theme to the alternaverse. What if we made everyone <laughs> exactly, exactly, everyone's naked in the alternaverse? <laughs> I, maybe that's a good enough reason to bring it back. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe the swimsuit issues, the Marvel swimsuit issues, exist in the alternaverse. Jessica, we have to discuss the Marvel swimsuit issues. We have to discuss those at some point. <laughs> Marvel World 1215 is actually a nudist world. <laughs> Love it. Uh, okay, so after all these books were published, the Alterniverse label pretty much vanished, which yeah, kind of checks out given how rough the year 96 was for Marvel. I mean, things started off pretty bad on January 4th when the company wound up laying off almost 275 employees, and then it kept getting worse until the company declared bankruptcy the following December, which, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, <laughs> that that affected one of us on a personal level yeah. in this episode. So, like I said, there's not a lot of documentation about the imprint, but my guess is that it got shut down during the financial drama of that year. Carl Potts left Marvel in 96. I'm honestly not sure if he was laid off or if he left voluntarily. And the Alterniverse itself hasn't appeared in the masthead since. But it hasn't vanished completely. Universal's Islands of Adventure in Florida has the Marvel Alterniverse store on its superhero island. And there's also no official documentation on this, but Comic Vine notes that the brand serves as a, quote, lab for experimenting with new ideas within Marvel. And I can't confirm that anywhere else, so we got to take that with a grain of salt, or in this case, you know, an entire salt lick. 
<laughs> but I think that's kind of a neat idea. And there's a little part of me that hopes that it's true. So, yeah. Other than that, does anyone have any final thoughts on uh, the Alterniverse before we move on to the final section of our episode? I think I've given you enough of my thoughts on <laughs> feelings on this topic. I really do. <laughs> I was just going to say, though, Mike, like what you were just saying, that you hope it's true that it exists in some way, even as a mindset to lab and experiment with different things. I totally agree because it, it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite things, which is Mark Gruenwald's creation of the Omniverse. So his fanzine in the 70s, where he tried to construct a reality in which all fictional narratives coexisted. And he Mm. started with comics, but then he sadly only got two issues into a fanzine where he was even going to bring in like Sherlock Holmes and sort of establish that there was this universe with all these branching things, and it's called the Omniverse. And so I think the Alterniverse, even just as a concept, feels very linked to that. And I, I like it a lot and hope like you said it's a way we can see more fun experiments all right rob yeah i mean i definitely think there is a place for it and i think that we've started to see what if come back as well and and to your point what you were saying mike is that it as this experimentation ground we've certainly seen what if play that role throughout time so jane foster became thor in what if way before she became thor in mainstream marvel continuity so i definitely think that there is room for this and it's interesting because to me and i'm not the comic expert certainly that Guido is but we've actually strangely enough seen the distinguished competition really embrace this even more almost all, all their books are some kind of alternate universe take now while mm-hmm. marvel has really probably also because of the mcu dug in deep into a single continuity. So it'll be interesting to see if it will eventually break from that. Yeah, I think these things go in cycles. And so I think we'll see Marvel return to a larger multiverse. Like we're starting to get that with Dark Ages, the new book from Tom Taylor. Mm -hmm. And then there was recently the Darkhold series that I was reading where it was showing really Mm -hmm. dark takes on all the different superheroes as one shots. I loved that. The Spider-Man one was one of the darkest things I'd ever read. Yeah, it was a cool way to do basically what if, but to have it exist in the 616 because they were reading yeah. stories in the Darkhold about themselves. I thought that was a very cool concept. Yeah. All right. Well, how about we move on to the final part of our episode, a.k.a. Brain Wrinkles. So Brain Wrinkles is the one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been occupying our brains for the last couple of days. And... I've talked for a spell, so Jessica, how about you go first? Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back to Spider-Man and actually looking at Punisher, this Punisher story we discussed earlier, I like that these stories really focus on the impact to the community and health and welfare of your average citizen. It's interesting to see how the writers deal with all of the destruction and what it takes to start rebuilding after one of these battles. I really liked that in the Spider-Man movies, They had buildings being rebuilt and active construction happening and seeing whole cities being destroyed. It just was like, this is real. There are people going through the rubble trying to see what they can find from their home because it was destroyed. You know, lives were lost. And I I just don't think it's realistic to believe that all of these huge battles come without a price. 
And I think about what happens to those people who no longer have a home because Captain America was fighting a foe and took out their apartment building while they were out or worse, while they were inside. So good on these stories for actually taking on that question and giving us that piece of that world's reality. Yeah. All right. Robin Guido, you're up. Well, I'll just piggyback off of that to Jessica and say I, I thought Hawkeye did a great job with that, too, especially in the opening episode setting that stage there. But for me, I think the one thing doing our podcast and also reading these here is I really love when comics or other mediums are able to do this kind of speculative fiction work. I recently sat down and reread for the second time Alan Moore's Providence, which basically tells kind of the story of H.P. Lovecraft, but through this other figure who drifts through. And it's a great take of like, what if everything Lovecraft wrote about actually existed, but was actually first encountered by this other character. And I loved this kind of speculative fiction work popping up in other mediums. We just recently watched uh, the movie Silent Night, which was kind of billed as a horror movie, but wasn't quite, but it's really kind of a alternate universe COVID movie. And I think the pandemic has also kind of opened the floodgates in being a good reason why we can tell more of these alternate universes taking this very unique time that we live in now. And let's see, how can we put a twist on it that's not, you know, this specific pandemic, but maybe another reason why we are isolating. And not surprisingly, I'm always thinking about the multiverse. But I think reading all of these and thinking about the work we do in Deer Watchers and what's happening in media in terms of DC's approach to movies versus Marvel's approach to movies, which seems to be changing, is the question for me always of how a multiverse can work and still provide you with storytelling that feels like there are stakes. I think that's the tricky thing to do. It's why the MCU holds a really special place in my heart for the first 22 movies, because it was one connected universe. And it's what Marvel, with some exceptions, has always been in the comic books, is one connected universe. And DC, where a lot of my attention has shifted over the last two years, because they're doing some pretty incredible storytelling, is just doing it because they're not paying too much attention to that but you still feel like everything you're reading can exist together. So I'm always really interested in how a multiverse can function in terms of an audience relationship to a story. And it's been fun to explore that through this Alterniverse banner today. Yeah. Well, mine is less thoughtful and more concrete. It's actually tied to what we were tweeting about right before this episode started, where (laughs) you were tagging us and pointing out the weird comics in the 90s, like Avatar. What was it? Avatars, the Covenant of the Shield. Was that the name of it? Yeah, I don't even know what it is, but yeah. <laughs> it's like a medieval fantasy 90s take on the Avengers. I think it was supposed to be 12 series, but it only wound up being three. And it feels kind of like a speculative pilot. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, I just got the greatest thing in the mail yesterday. And it was Continuity Comics, which was Neil Adams imprint in the 80s and 90s. And their insane gimmick covers, including the die cut issue of crazy man which is actually cut out around the shape of the guy's head and you open it up and you can see that they clearly thought of this like at the last minute because (laughs) they did not account for how this was going to affect the content in the book so like the credits page is cut off like ads have some of their copy cut into as well and it's like almost unreadable it's amazing but i'm thinking (laughs) about the gimmicks that were used during this era to to sell Mm -hmm. comics and we talked about the acetate covers that they were doing with the Marvel stuff. 
for continuity comics, they were doing Tyvek covers, like the Tyvek plastic, and they were billing it as indestructible covers and all of that. It's just making me think about this industry and medium that I love and how absolutely goofy it gets sometimes and (laughs) how in hindsight, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And you can find all these really interesting moments for not a lot of money. And I mean, I collect these weird, goofy, strange moments like other people collect clown art, which I believe <laughs> one of you likes clown art, right? It, yeah, it's yes. yeah, there you go. Behind, <laughs> the listener can't see, but I have several creepy clowns behind me. Yes. <laughs> I, and, and believe it or not, this is a room people have to sleep in when they come visit us. So, you know, they... <laughs> Thank you for the warning. <laughs> I was going to say, I will, uh, I will make a point of hitting the couch. That's fine. <laughs> oh, man. Well, on that note, I think we're going to close out the episode. Robin Guido, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. We really appreciate it. And it was wonderful to actually get to talk with you in person after all this time where we've been sitting there and poking fun at each other with tweets. <laughs> yes, agreed. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you. This was a blast. Yeah. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with our final episode of the Sandman Book Club. And until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, Rob Rebar, and Guido Sanchez. It was written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can follow Dear Watchers on Twitter at Dear Watchers. Or email us at podcast at dearwatchers.com. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there and support your local comic shop.